one size fits all. At least that's what mass commercialization after the 1950s wanted us to believe. But is it really true? Whether you're at Target, Walmart, or your local boutique, we've all been clothes shopping, and if you see something that fits your style, you've got to check and see if it actually fits your body. XL in one place is a double XL in another, and a small in one place is an extra small in another place. Come on. The changing room can be a humbling experience if you're like me or you're just in that post-holiday exercise hiatus. It'll reveal that large is probably now a bit of a medium. And even if you do find an item in your size after a period of time, it might not really fit in stylistically. Now, this isn't necessarily a metaphor for B2B SaaS swag. This is actually a metaphor for business operations. While Facebook ads might bring in 10% more leads for company X, Company Y might try that and see an even smaller return than they had before. Additionally, that channel can wane if not tended to properly, and pretty soon Facebook ads aren't as viable as an option anymore. But it doesn't hurt to try. And today's guest, Dave Barrett, the founder and CEO of Expensify, knows this better than most. He exemplifies this concept of challenging existing principles and also trying out new ways of thinking. Over his decade-plus tenure leading Expensify, he has learned what attracts not only the best customers and where to focus on getting them, but he's also one of the deepest thinkers I have ever talked to when it comes to wisdom and advice on how to build an actual business. All of those thoughts and more coming up next. From Paddle, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, Dave Barrett dives deep on process. We talk about marketing effectively by being unconventional, the roadmap to company-wide efficiency, obsessing over process, overcoming fears as an operator, and the two rules for disagreeable discussions. After you finish the episode, check out the show notes for an in-depth field guide focused on what we went over. Well, I'm David, the founder and CEO of Expensify, and uh, we do expense reports that don't suck. It's a bold vision, but we're making the world a better place one expense report at a time. You guys have been around for a while. Like it's a product that's yeah, been thirteen around. years. Yeah. yeah, and so what's been what's been kind of like that development? Has has like the core of the product really changed, or has it been you know maybe like we've refactored, made it faster, that kind of thing? Like how how do you think about the last thirteen years, basically? So first, the opportunity is huge. Like every business in the world has an expense problem. Like not all have revenue. All of them have expenses. And it's roughly the same process, regardless of the company size, uh, every, every currency and things like this. And so the, the hundreds of million businesses in the world, like hundreds of millions of businesses in the world, every single one has this problem. Virtually none use anything. Like every single customer of every one of our competitors, it's still like less than 0.1% of the actual opportunity size. And so I think that people get so obsessed with this idea of TAM and so forth, and they talk about like, you know, single digit billions, and like, wow, it's big or whatever it is. But that's because we limit our imagination of what TAM is to that which can be acquired by a traditional acquisition model. And we just all accept it almost as a given it's not possible to acquire 99% of the world. We need to think about our 0.1% and that's our and that's success. And so I think that uh, we've always from the very start modeled ourselves after like, how do we acquire every business in the world? And that's just a different strategy than everyone else. And so getting back to your question, I would say, so 
we think the opportunity size is so huge. I think that the past 13 years has been about like, imagine it's kind of like a bubble or something like this that we push in one direction for a while, then we come back and push in different directions. So we can keep expanding our scope. I didn't want to start off with anything, like no one does. But uh, basically just like, you know, this vaporware app for that could, I claim could scan receipts back when the cameras were so bad, you literally couldn't read anything off of them. But it didn't matter because I was just like, I was just selling the dream. And so that was, and if the first people who saw that dream were just individual like salespeople at conferences and things like this. And so initially it was all about like, hey, what does the individual employee want? What do they hate? Why do they hate Concur so much? What do they hate about expense management so much? And then building something for them. And then once I had something, it's like, okay, it solved the dream for the employee. Now it's like, well, now I need to get the admins on board. So it's like, okay, well, initially it was like small business and things like this. Basically focusing on what is a small business customer need sort of thing. And then it went back to, it's like, okay, now we need to deliver on the promise that we made to everyone. And then go back to the, the end user experience. And it's like, oh, now we've got to think about the thousand person company. And then like, we kind of go back to the end user a bit more and automate a bit more and kind of like more, more word of mouth. And now we're talking about the 10,000 person company. So it's like this pendulum swinging back and forth between essentially consumer and enterprise. Um, and we've been pushing in both directions ever since. And so now I think the pendulum's right now kind of like very much on consumerizing things again, um, like refreshing for uh, making it even slicker, even more automatic for the end user probably going to like swing back to the direction at some point. So it's just basically this pendulum swing back and forth between kind of consumer and enterprise. You mentioned Concur, you know, obviously that's been around for a long time. What was the shift? Because obviously you guys have been successful. Was it the fact that there was more mobile going on? I mean, it was early starting really early or was it just that it was so bad because it was so enterprisey that gave you a little bit of a wedge in? Think? I think it comes down to your acquisition model. Like everything about us traces back to we acquire customers in a completely different way. And that's because we're aiming for a very different market than most. Concur is not trying to capture 100% of businesses. They're trying to capture 0.1% of the world's businesses. The, the, what they would say are the best 0.1%. But I think the fallacy of that is that everyone else with the same business model is going after that same 0.1% of the opportunity, which means it's no longer the best 0.1%. It's actually the worst 0.1%. Because um, everyone with an, uh, the same enterprise acquisition model uh, is buying ads from the same place with the same messages for the same price. They are feeding them into a sales team paid the same commission, the same sort of feature list that goes into like, you know, a product management team, which is hired from the same places, builds the same product, managed by the same customer store. Everything about it is exactly the same. Um, and all of them are losing money. If you have a, a, an easy traditional acquisition model, odds are there's a dozen competitors who have the exact same model and they're employing it the exact same way. All of them are venture funded. The VCs don't actually care about making a real product. And so all of them are losing money, literally their entire existence. At no point is anyone even trying to make a real business. And so as a result, none of them are actually real businesses. None of them have ever turned to like a dollar of profit uh, because it's basically impossible. And uh, all of our competition has been acquired and exited before making like a dollar profit. And, but that was their design too. It wasn't even like an accident. It was, that, was, that was their plan. And they, it's easy to make a small amount of money and most people do. We're trying to make an absolutely giant amount of money and that's hard and it's a different strategy. And so I would say the difference is first, we're just aiming for a different goal than they are, a much bigger pie than they're trying to get. And then secondarily, our model couldn't have worked prior to the mobile app stores. So we're the very first expense reporting app, the first app promoting receipt scanning before the cameras even worked. And then before the app stores even existed. And then we got a name for like, oh, Expensify is that app, which you can't install because there's no app stores. 
the scans receipts, which doesn't work because the cameras don't. And then suddenly we got um, the next version of iPhone got an autofocus camera and opened up the App Store. And so we just happened to be first in line yeah, which for, helps this, a lot. for this thing. And then that, that just propelled us, that produced word of mouth. So it's not like our model could have even worked before we came out. Sure. And when you look at, you know, that, that TAM analysis, I think, is actually a really interesting point. Because if everyone's going for the point one, like you said, it like gets gets really funky. I think for you guys, though, it's a lot of fronts, right? You yeah. know, when you're going in the middle and then going out and... You know, yes, being the first on the App Store and stuff, I'm sure help. But there's plenty of people who were also first that are no longer around. Yep. And so what do you think was the thing that like helped you fight those fronts, whether it was new features, whether it was like going up and down, like you said, and kind of going out in the sense of like getting so many different types of companies off of, you know, spreadsheets and things yep. like that? I think it was uh, an early focus in unit economics and not like the CAC LTV that everyone's out there like that first I've just never seen a business work it out like literally none I just don't believe that there's any business out there that has a statistically relevant CAC to LTV ratio that actually describes a, the majority of the revenue they acquire like I know that everyone has a CAC and LTV that acquires some of the revenue they acquire but like I remember I was talking with I don't know someone that like boxed that like boxed on that back in the day and they're like and they were like legendary for having a highly sophisticated customer acquisition pipeline spent a shitload of money I was talking to this guy uh, about like how quantified they are and things like this. Um, and I'm like, almost like as an afterthought. I've talked to them for an hour. I'm like, hey, what, what fraction of your revenue can be traced back to your customer, your, your paid customer acquisition? And he's like, oh, you know, maybe 30%. And that's like a soft 30. And I think that's probably true for most businesses that like, yes, there is a portion that can be quantified and everyone obsesses over that, but it's also largely an irrelevant portion. The overwhelming majority of, I think, nearly every business I've ever heard of actually comes from uh, like word of mouth, uh, brand, inbound, things like this. But people just don't talk about it because it's just, it's so hard to quantify. We just like act like it doesn't exist. Like I was talking about like early Salesforce folks. I don't remember their names, but it's like, and they'd like come up, everyone thinks of like the predictable revenue model, the Salesforce model. So I was like, yeah, we didn't do any of that at the start. Like that worked later uh, when we were going after larger deal sizes and things like this. And we had a brand and a bunch of other things, but that was actually not at all how we started. When you say unit economics, then what are you thinking about? What are you looking at? How much do you spend for your customers? And I think the ideal is zero. So we built a product first business model uh, that has zero marginal cost customer acquisition. Like everyone else is paying through the nose for leads. We're like overwhelmed with leads because we had a, like, we built a very, a viral model from the very first day and continuously reinvested back into it. It takes a long time. Like exponential growth is fast in the end. It starts off slow. And so when you go from like, you know, $10 a month to $11 a month, it's like, that seems so small. But you're going from like, you know, uh, when the numbers, you add zeros at the end of it, 10% is actually gigantic and if you can just keep that going for a very long time it's amazing so you were like the original og of product-led growth or whatever they're calling yeah, i guess states. yeah i mean yeah. like uh, and i think we're dropbox probably earns that title more than anyone but only for consumers because now i'm kind of like thinking back do you do any advertising because now i'm like i can't i can't think of if i've seen it but I, funny yeah. enough so well, we didn't do any advertising until our super bowl ad we dabbled with it enough to realize this doesn't work at all, um, like literally at all. And everyone else, and it's because at, at a certain scale, it's just like it's immeasurable. Um, and so, but we're like, so far as we can say, most people say like, oh, it's too small. We need to go bigger in order to prove it. And I guess still, I can't see any results. Go bigger. bigger. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, yeah, like, yeah. and then they'll, they'll go their entire career, so never see results. To the end and went to the biggest. Yeah, it was down, like, yeah. And uh, so anyway, we started super, but not even to uh, acquire customers. It was all about team building. Um, like we were a little bit profitable. Uh, and there was like a vibe in the team, like 
cool, we did it. Like, you know, now we're just going to coast off the sunset. And I'm like, no, man, it was like, let's, let's get everyone thinking so much bigger on a bigger scale. And was like, are you kidding me? Like, we don't, we don't advertise. I'm like, well, we're going to now. Um, they're like, well, how, what, that doesn't even make sense. Like someone going to do when they see the ad, we don't really have much consumer functionality. It's like, well, we better add it then. Right. Like, okay, I guess. And then like push the pendulum back to consumer for a while. And it's like, well, then how is it even going to work? How are we going to afford this? Like, is it like, we were only barely profitless. No, we can afford that. I'm like, well, what if we double prices on all customers? And they're like, well, that's, that's crazy. I'm like, well, so long as we lose less than half of them, yeah. it works out, right? They're like, I guess. And then, um, but then we didn't lose any of them because actually we're priced so cheap even now. So we kept all of our customers, doubled all of our revenue and just made a ton of profit. Was this the one to $2 change? Each time we've uh, adjusted our pricing, we've actually kept or lowered prices on the list, but then made some other change that results in doubled pricing. It's, okay. And so I'm going to do like all sorts of like pricing trickery, which basically has been about fit, like really ke keeping in touch with the value you're delivering and who you're delivering it to relative to the price. And I think like, we, we hear all the time. It's like, oh, I, I couldn't live without like you know, Salesforce and Expensify. I'm like, Salesforce is $90 yeah, per seat crazy. minimum. And you don't even get what you need until you're at 130. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I'm like, so I feel like we've got a 10x buffer between us and actually like what you do. A super pro ad for team building. You're clearly a founder's founder. That's like, <laughs> that's definitely like, yeah, this is why we did it. And you're like, that makes no sense, but it makes sense from like a founder's perspective. Like it's so good. Yeah, I mean, it, it had already paid for itself in increased profit before we aired it. Do ads work anywhere? Like is it, or is it just more the like crazy venture-y, too much venture? Here's our thing? theory around it. I think that um, I don't, I do not think ads produce a positive ROI when you're measuring it from like a new, new customer acquisition perspective. Got it. The more measurable it is, the lower the ROI. And so the places where the most measurable, everyone else is doing the exact same thing. They're willing to lose money on it. So like it drives it negative ROI everywhere. So it's more of a brand play. Yeah, but it? I think brand advertising can be very positive ROI, but you just can't really measure, measure it. Measure, yeah. Um, and so we take a different approach towards it, which we call a market consensus strategy, where rather than trying to calculate the ROI of any ads, we instead survey different markets to make sure that people view us more favorably than all of our competition. Interesting. And then we know that we will catch, capture the lion's share of word of mouth just by automatically. And so we calibrate our marketing spend based upon creating basically energizing word of mouth, but it's not based upon sort of like the specific ROI or cost of like CAC to LTV ratio or anything like that. And that's, and that's relatively new. Like I, we actually have to start we haven't done any advertising for 11 or 12 of the 13 years of existence, yeah. Are those just, I don't know, like, what kind of ads? Are those video ads? Like, like how do you energize the base, I guess? How are you thinking about it? I would say we find, like, uh, outdoor. So we go to places where no one else does. Uh, because, again, it's like we think the highest return is going to be in the places that are the least measurable. And so, we're like, bus ads, you know, bus shelters, uh, like, you know, things like that. That's cool. I have an interesting model to share with you because we, we were doing something similar with this thing. I, I do have to give you major props. You wrote this article, this blog post, when you raised your price from $1 to $2. Mm -hmm. I think it's maybe a decade ago at this point. It's been a long time since you wrote this article. One, I think you, it was a, we use this as an example because we, we have price optimization software and we help other companies with pricing and stuff. We use this as a really good banner example of like how to communicate the pricing change to someone because you were really empathetic and you were like, yeah, listen, you know, this is, a, this is like one to two. We haven't raised our prices. We've had all this functionality, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. But the most brilliant thing you did, and I don't know how intentional it was, you put PS, if this materially impacts your business or you phrase it somewhat like that, uh, let us know and we'll work something out or something like that. 
And we've seen this now in practice time and time again, that that PS is the amazing thing. And I just, I just want to give you props because it, it's for two types of people. It's for people who like it actually impacts them. Because I remember reading the comments on that blog post and it was like, yeah, Dave, it's, you know, I know it's only one to $2, but it's a 100% increase or something like that, like, yeah, and, which, you know, there's always someone complains. So it deals for the people who actually are hurting, but it also deals for the people who are probably like, at least like me, you like you run a P&L and like, you never want to pay more for something. But if you, someone says that, you're like, I don't want to be the jerk, like that kind of a thing, right? <laughs> so it was brilliant. And I don't know if you did it intentionally, but like, I just want to let you know I've stolen it uh, That's many great. times now. I, you yeah. know, honestly, I've forgotten all about that and I should do that again. You're just already like an empathetic founder, you know, that, that you know, is, isn't afraid to have opinions. Uh, so it's one of those things I think is powerful. When you're swinging that pendulum, how fast is that swing? Mm, I would say the period of it's like two years. Okay. Because I'm thinking like a team that has to go up or down, like, a product team even just has to like kind of rejigger things, even if you have multiple product teams kind of thing. Well, we only, so we only have one team. Uh, and what I mean by that is like, so we talk about expensive as a very flat company. Sure. And what I think flat means is it has no thick, juicy center. Everyone has at least one foot in the real world. We have no product managers. Like there is no one whose job is like just to think real hard. Like everyone is either talking to customers, writing the code, talking to investors. Like everyone's doing something outward facing. So everyone has their own personal real world experience. Uh, and so for example, um, our customer success team is the closest we have to a product management team. Our customer success team spends roughly about 30% of their time talking to customers, and the other 70 basically are like writing product specs, fixing bugs, testing things, and so that's one reason why the product is so in tune with the customer's needs is because we don't have someone that's just like talking to the customer success team in order to figure out what the challenges are, and then like in, then it's like there's a telephone game of kind of requirements. It's like the actual customer success team works directly with the engineers writing the code, and then they fix it. And so that means that we can be extremely agile because there's not a long sort of like gap between basically when we learn information and we apply it. It's basically if that cycle is very quickly, you can turn reprioritize in a dime. So is there any like? Road mapping then, or how does that? Road mapping is, is very fuzzy. We don't have any sort of like real formal roadmap. In fact, when you work at Expensify, we say it's like, I mean, we're very clear on this. It's like you don't report to anyone. Um, you have no boss. Uh, do literally whatever you think is the best thing for you to do. You know your skills better than anyone else. Too much is going on for anybody to tra keep track of it all. So no one knows a better use of your time than you do. You can write any design doc, write anything. It's like do whatever, literally anything you want to do. However, we do. Uh, there's two caveats to that. One is you have to follow the same process as everyone else. And that process is designed to slow down and broadcast your thinking. So you can say, do whatever you want, but you need to first go into like our in a Slack, that we get a Slack room called What's Next. Go into the Slack room and write one paragraph description of what do you think the problem is you're trying to solve? What is at a one paragraph high level solution? And then let that sit for a day. And people are gonna chime in. Like, I don't think that's a real problem or it's not quite right or something like this, where that solution's like off, things like this. Then you have to go to a design doc. And like, and you, don't, and you have to take the feedback. You don't have to do anything with it. You just have to hear it uh, and give everyone a heads up of what you're gonna do. Then we go to a design doc, which is like a more detailed sort of thing. Let that sit, get some review. Again, ignore all the feedback, that's fine, but you have to hear it. All of this is designed to slow things down such that you can have a more inclusive environment for people, especially for different time zones to participate. And so this whole process basically allows, engages everyone in the product management perspective. The roadmap is just kind of like a loose consensus of where we're going, but there's, no one's required to follow it. Like you can just do whatever you want. The other caveat is, do whatever you want, but your compensation is determined by your peers. Again, there's no managers, so there's no one there to get like, 
you can't ask for a raise because who would you ask it to? Instead, the way it works is twice a year, I mean, there's internal tools to support it. Everyone votes on a compensation. We have a tool that brings up two random employees, like Alice and Bob. They show them side by side. It's like, again, there's no teams. Uh, so it's basically like, here's uh, how many conversations they've closed with customers. Here's how many GitHub contributions they've done. Here's how many like sales calls they've done or whatever it is. Here they are side by side. And then here's like a Twitter length blurb that they have of like what they've done in the past quarter, or in the past half year. And then the question at the top is, who do you think should be paid more? Left or right? I was like, Alice or Bob? Bob or Kathy? Do that about 9,000 times. You've ranked every pairwise combination in the company. Yeah. Everyone in the company does the same thing. And so then we take all that, we collapse all the data, we normalize it, and then it just spits out via formula. Okay, this is your new compensation according to the collective wisdom of the entire company. And it's wild and it works great because it's so much more nuanced than any manager could possibly be. It's impossible to game. How many ABs do I answer? I think like it was the last time around was like 9,200. So like 9,200. But you can optimize that down because, you know, you can say if A is greater than B and B is greater than C, then you know that A is greater than B. But C, how so many like, do I personally click? You, you probably have to do like a 2,000 or something like that. It takes I like personally click 2,000. It probably takes about 10 hours. Yeah. We only have 140 people. And it's fine, actually. You don't have to stress out too much about it. Like, you're, any individual decisions, like, not that influential. Yeah, because there's a lot going on. So, like, yeah. it, but you bring the insight where you can, and then you basically just go on. It's like, I don't really know, but, like, ah, my instinct is this. It's like, that's good. That's still data. Like, I'll take yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is this no managers decide what to do? It sounds like that's more than just engineers. That's sales. That's, that's all that the whole company. Again, we don't have any defined teams in the sense that, like, we have a bunch of different job posts just because people self-identify in different ways. But once you're in, it's just one room. It's like, nope, cool. You interviewed for being a mobile engineer? Do whatever you want. Literally don't care. Uh, want to go to marketing? Want to work on a nonprofit? Yeah. Great. It's awesome. The case against this, I guess, is speed, right? Like, that's a theory. I'm not saying that's yeah, true. Yeah. But I'm like, is it, so why aren't more companies doing at least like the, you know, not, not necessarily the no managers part, but like the whole like work on what you think is best? Because intuitively it makes the most sense. And especially if you have those feedback cycles, like if you let everyone know what's going on and I disagree with you, that gives me the forum to like, work with you until I convince you, right? Or you convince me and that type of thing, which or, I think or, is- Or one person just goes ahead and it either works or fails and then reality tells us. You know what's funny though? It's like a much more elegant way to do it because we, you know, we have this kind of in theory, we, you know, we have managers and we have some decision points and stuff like that, but it's very much like, you know, we have a very feedback driven culture and stuff like that. And then what ends up happening is, you know, you have those conversations, but this is a very elegant way because it puts pure transparency yeah. as well as like, you know, letting the debate or the feedback kind of happen and then kind of falling on the merits. I guess like, why, why do you think more companies don't do this? Because it, it take an average group of like, a random hundred people and it would fail utterly. We're very, very selective. Like Expensify is the best place in the world for a very tiny group of people. Uh, and most people just wouldn't work in this environment. Cause I think to work in this environment, you have to have like three core qualities, I would say. One is that you have to have a raw natural talent, which we define as the ability to learn without being taught and teach what you know. That's important because again, there's no one here to hold your hand. There's no one here to spoon feed you work and things like this. And so you have to be kind of an autodidact. Like it just doesn't work otherwise. Second, you have to be ambitious and uh, like meaning have some actual genuine goal for your personal life and some evidence that you're pursuing it. Because if you don't have ambition, like you're not going to step up and find opportunities. You're, you're going to sit around and wait for someone to tell you what you do. And there's just no one here to tell you to do. And the third and the most important of those is that you have to have a real deep humility. You have to have an appreciation and an excitement for other people's ideas and like an enthusiasm to be wrong. 
any one of these three is hard to find. Getting all three in the same person is super hard to find. How are you screening? Like, what's your what's your recruiting process? Like, yeah, we put a ton know. of time into hiring, and we hire very few people. We don't look at resumes. We don't ask for resumes. We just say, answer these three essay questions. What do you want to do with the rest of your life, and how can Expensify help? When did you start doing whatever it is you do, and why? Yeah. Uh, and how did you learn about Expensify? And then based upon that, then we decide whether or not to... Uh, basically do a remote challenge. The remote challenge depends upon the role. There's several different ways to get in, and then each of us has a different kind of interview process. Sure. So like if you're engineering or something like that, we'll do like a remote programming challenge, which basically is just like, can you do anything from scratch? Yeah. Like everyone can like, you know, add a feature to an existing code base. Yeah. It's like, can you start something from scratch that does the most basic stuff? If you get through that, then we take you into an on-site challenge. We run you through a bunch of like real world stuff. Uh, every, after each challenge, and we do it in front of the whole company. So basically, everyone in the company can uh, tune in, and then we all talk about the candidate and say, like, what do we like? We didn't like. How do we adjust the next thing? What are the red flags we have? Things like this. Should we continue or not? We're very aggressive on cutting quickly. So, like, we'll cut after the very first challenge if necessary. Then we go back and forth. So each time we kind of reiterate this. At the end, if you make it through this whole process, then you talk to me. Yeah. Uh, and, and then I, the only question I ask is the same question, the first question. What do you want to do with the rest of your life? And how can Expensify help? The overwhelming majority of people have the exact same answer. Um, so, and it's always a failing answer. The failing answer always sounds the same. The passing answers always sound radically different. And the failing answer is always some form of like, you know, I wanna learn, I wanna solve hard problems. Uh, I really want to like, you know, be challenged and valued. Uh, I want to, you know, maybe someday start a company. It's like a generic corporate yeah. answer. And I'm like, yeah. cool, but that's, that's just a series of actions you want to take. Yeah. Like, what are the actual, what's the consequence of those actions? Yeah. And so then I ask it again. You're in your deathbed. You're looking back over your life, surrounded by your friends and family. Like, what do you want to say is your greatest achievement, your greatest accomplishment? Again, all the failing answers are the same. I want to know that I tried my best, uh, that I really, you know, contributed to the people around me, that I, that I started a family. I'm like, cool. That Instagram is the human quotes. condition. Yeah, this yeah, is literally 100% yeah. of humanity would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Like this is, I'm testing for ambition here and there's nothing. Yeah, yeah. And then the third one would be like, get a million, a billion dollars in your bank account. Uh, what would you do with it? Yeah. Uh, and most people are like, well, you know, I would donate a lot. I'm like, you can't even spend your own money. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, one guy said, uh, oh, well, you know, I'd give my brother a laptop. I'm like, <laughs> I would hope so. Um, and so anyway. Is a passing answer like, I want to do like... I want to take this and this. And like, is it just the specificity? It's just anything specific okay. to them. And then I'll push them. And so it's, like, it's an open book test. It's like, that's why I'm like, look, everyone can know the failing answer, but it's hard to come up with the real passing answer. And I just want people to think about it yeah. and come in to be so like, I, I want to do literally anything with my life that is unique. And I turn away a ton of candidates that way. That's fascinating. That's so interesting. So you're testing for ambition there. That's the purpose of yeah, that Yeah, and question. then so we, most of our interview process is testing for talent. Uh, my job in the interview process is test for ambition. Humility, we can't test for. That just reveals yeah. itself over time. And is it something where, like, once you're in, especially with the salary structure, like, what does firing look like? Firing means, like, you've dropped in your rank substantially over time. Okay. Um, and basically, it's like, because we, we bring you in, we kind of slot you in where we think you're going to get ranked. And this is amongst the 140 from like a yeah. salary perspective. And it's, okay. it's like if you just keep dropping over time, like your metrics are like in the lowest, you know, decile or something like that. And then we'll, then we'll start off and it's like, hey, well, you know, first our, our assumption is that it's like you, you need some kind of support that we're not getting. Like sure. we know you're, we think you're awesome. Otherwise we, we wouldn't have hired you. We made you, you through, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And so like, what do you need that you're not getting. And so let's try to like, you know, help you with that. And we have a whole process in place that's designed to kind of like bring in resources to help people succeed. Yeah. And also to clarify, like, look, this might not be the right fit. Like, look, anyone who works at Expensify can get a job anywhere. And so it's like, cool, maybe you should go someplace else, like yeah. Google or Facebook or anyone else who would just hire 
whoever. Yeah. Like you can definitely get a job there. <laughs> Aggressive way to put it. But yeah, I like that. I like that. <laughs> when we talk about 10X engineers and stuff, you're, you're literally just be like, we don't want to hire you unless you're 10X. Yeah. Is that the idea? And then therefore we're going to able to get a lockdown with not a lot of people. Yeah. Because like a, a 10X engineer isn't 10X because they type 10 times faster. It's that they make 10X fewer mistakes. It's just that they just do 10X less and so I think that's like, if you have a group of people that just makes good decisions methodically, consistently, it's not like they're 10X in every situation. I think they can be 10X if given, if put into the right context. And so I think we find people and we give them an environment which enables them to, to be a 10X the engineer. context, yeah. yeah. Were, was it always like this? It's, it's It sounds so obvious, but I'd say from the, from the first start, I'm like, you know what? I want to build a company uh, that I never want to leave. Whenever we started doing something that I just, that like no one likes. It's like, hey, wh so why are we doing this thing yeah. that no that no one likes? Yeah. I'm like, well, you know, we have to. I'm like, well, do we? Why? Like, yeah. why specifically? It's like, well, you know, you have to compensate with managers. I'm like, well, what if we didn't? What is there an alternative that we would like better? It's like, well, it'd be great if we could leave it up to a vote. I'm like, okay, how exactly Let's would that, that look? Yeah. Like, well, you can't do that. I'm like, I don't know. Let's try it. See what we think. You've had investors or have investors. Like, what's it, there's got to be pushback on this, no? Yeah, I think. I mean, having results makes everything easy. Yeah. Um, and and if you didn't deliver, I mean, like then yeah, then sure you, we wouldn't keep. But they're doing like it. whatever, keep going. Yeah, We're not yeah. going to suggest this to others. Yeah, but the, sure. Yeah, I think everyone's creeped out. They're like, what the f is going on? I'm I, fascinated. Yeah, everyone's yeah. somewhere between fascinated and creeped out. Like yeah. you know, and uh, but they're like, I mean, the results are great, yeah. so keep doing it, I guess. But like, are you sure it's going to yeah. scale? And everyone's like, you know, oh, this is going to work now. At, 10 or 20 or 50 but it won't work or 100 or 1000 yeah, I'm like yeah. I don't know well if so we'll change like I don't know again the company we are right now is not the company we were when we were 10 people we're so much better at everything um, and so I'm sure when we're like 200 or 500 like we will be better too You know, it, it's kind of funny when you you break it down sometimes in a full sense of security of the numbers, you say, oh, I need this many people because I want more of these numbers, right? Yeah. It sounds like for you, it's like, how do you, basically the question is, how do you determine how many people you're going to hire next year or anything like that? I think that uh, there's like the Silicon Valley concept that like hiring is like basketball, like the more people, the better. We view it more like golf. Uh, it's like you want the fewest possible people to get the job done yeah. because a, a person is a solution to a problem. Yeah. Um, and so the best is you don't have a problem. No, yeah. no, no need to hire. Uh, next best is uh, you automate away, away the problem. It's like, cool, like the robots can do it. Next is you can outsource the solution of the problem. And then only after you've tried and failed at all of that, do you say, okay, I guess we should hire. Do your sales folks have like, Variable comp? No, everyone has. Everyone's compensated the it's exact based same on way. That model you yeah. said, and uh, that's why we don't do any sort of commission sales. And I would say like we're not really a sales-driven organization. Everything is self-service. So like there's there's no need to talk to a salesperson. There's no like benefit for doing so because you can't really negotiate anyway. It's just basically like we have a list price. It's available to everyone. It's self-service. It's very easy. And we have an amazing um, support team uh, that responds to like via chat instantly to like everything. Has that caused problems like where people I mean, I guess it's so many permutations that you kind of like the wisdom of the crowd is truly represented. And so you don't feel like there's anything fishy with the calculation. But is it? Yeah, no, I think people I mean, well, first, I think we just we compensate incredibly well because everyone we have is insanely talented. And furthermore, we pay the same wage regardless of where you are in the world. If you're living in San Francisco, you're like you're very comfortable if you're living literally anywhere else in the world you are, you are very comfortable. extremely comfortable <laughs> and then no one has the kind of flexibility and like so everyone's like super well compensated we are 
very aggressive when it comes to equity. Yeah. And so we encourage everyone to get equity. And then we are like super flexible for like work on anything you want, as long as you want. Is there ever like a salesperson who wants to work on like engineering or something? Yeah, all the time. Interesting. Yeah, like, uh, yeah, again, there is no individual person that fits like exclusively into one role. That's interesting. And you, you just sound like the person who's never had a problem with like, oh, I'm worried about the lack of control or we're not going to hit this target or something like I, that. I feel like... So first, that implies that you have targets. It, it's a different paradigm. You know, we hear all these talks and stuff. And there's all these paradigms. And you're just like, why? You know, why not this way? Like, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, I would say, like, most companies are looking for predictable growth. But I think the only way it's just like people are, like, looking to hit deadlines. And I think both of them only have the only way you can consistently hit a deadline is to pad your deadlines. Sure. And then and then you just delay. And the only way you can consistently hit growth numbers is to shrink your targets and then hit lower numbers. Yeah. I, I would say it's like, no, I have no idea how long this is going to take. Instead, I'm just going to be confident that we're following the right process. And if it takes a day or a month or a year, that's just how long it took. And so I have no idea how much money we can make. I have no idea how profitable we can be. But let's just be more. And let's always be looking for ways to be more. And I think in the, in the end, it adds up to gets done much faster than anyone would have predicted. And we hit much higher numbers than anyone would have set targets for. Is there ever a moment where you've like second guessed some of these like structures, I guess to call them? I mean, yeah, but they're, they're designed to evolve. Like they've evolved heavily constantly. So we're always second guessing. What's that. something that like evolved from beginning till now on these, on these axes? Uh, well, let's say like our compensation. So now it's based on voting. Uh, initially it was just me and my co-founder just paying ourselves, well, I just being pay ourselves anything. But then, then like, then it was like a small group of people that would sit down and talk about like a it. Committee kind um, of thing, a yeah. committee and then it kind of grew from there. Then it became like a committee leading a group and then it became like open voting. And now it's just all algorithmic. And so I would say the evolution has always been getting closer to our ideals. Yeah. And I'd say if we've ever second guessed at something, it's because we doubted ourselves. We tried something and then we're like, we should have just stuck to our guns. And so over time, we've just gotten more and more pure to the idea. Just based on this filtering, you're, you're hiring a, a rather mature, and that's not an age thing, but a mature team. Therefore, if there is something that goes wrong, you adjust, basically. Uh, or is that no, not I true? I don't think so. Like, I would say, um, so we have incredibly high retention. Like, our average, like, Silicon Valley is like one and a half, two years. Yeah. Like, we're like average six. The management team is like, like over eight. But we hire mostly right out of school. Uh, like we're often if someone's first job. And so I would say they're mature sort of like emotionally, perhaps. But, yeah, that's but what I meant. Yeah. Like notably absent from our requirements is any kind of experience. Yeah. Like we don't care if or where you went to school. Yeah. We don't care where you work. It's like experience just means you like you didn't get fired. It just happens as the exhaust. No, part. totally. Yeah. I meant more from the fact of like a less emotionally mature person. It. And it's not an age thing. Like you get. Yeah, out. yeah, yeah. Okay, it's, that's it's more of like a less emotionally mature person if you do something. Because some of the things you're doing are relative to the rest of the world, a little dramatic, right? Like, yeah. you know, rather corporate worlds. And so it's one of those things where if like you mess up, you have a mature base that is like, okay, let's try the next thing or let's evolve from there. And yeah. I think when you have super high retention, like we do, we have a very strong institutional knowledge. Yeah. And then it's like people have been around, they're in, they, their lives are comfortable. They've got good work-life balance. They're able to pursue their they're inspired at work. Like we take the whole company for uh, overseas for a month with families and kids just to like to bring everyone together and give people experiences so much bigger than they could imagine for themselves. And so like it's a whole package. It's not like, oh, we missed this deadline. It's basically like, eh, that took longer than we expected. Things went from astronomically amazing to only like a super amazing. So let's adjust it later. And so it's like, whatever. It's interesting because you're making me like realize that I think a lot of decisions are rooted in fear. Like I fear I'm going to miss this. More people means it'll work better. Like fear I'm going to like not be able to build this quick enough. Let's hire more engineers. 
I don't know if that's actually in, that's intuitive, but if that is intuitive, this is counterintuitive of like hire really good, like incredibly high bar people. You don't need as many, pay them really, really well because you don't have like a bazillion of them that you need to kind of like spread the peanut butter on. Do you just not have fear? Like, is that like, like, do you don't have, do you not have the founder paranoia where you're like worried about at least things? I yeah. mean, I would say, but my, I probably have a kind of a different set of fears. Like, uh, I, I think most people are af- afraid of not being able to close their next round. That's what drives everything. And that is an existential fear because they're like, basically at any point in time, I'm within 12 months of losing everything. And so then that is a very deep paranoia that drives basically like I have to do not what my current investors want, what we all think our next investor wants. Um, and I don't even know who that person is. So basically, like my entire life is in the hands of someone I've never met. And whereas we're like, nope, we just got profitable. And so now we never give up over half of the board. And so it's like we can't be fired. Um, and so we are accountable to our you know, t- tens of thousands of customers and our millions of users. Yeah. Uh, and so our fear is, are we doing right by our customers and users? And that's hard, like th- th- that's a different set of fears. And to say, it's like, how are we always making sure that we're like, we're cutting edge, we're delivering, we're keeping up and like, all, and making good on our promises and things like this. But that's, a, a, I would say a preferable set of fears. So it's not that I have no fears, it's just, I just don't have the same fears of other fears. Yeah, it's a different type of, it's, it, you know, everyone's got some fear, right? But yeah, it's a different, you're blowing my mind just so you know like that's and that's good like normally i hear like oh let's set up a sales strategy and it's like oh that's interesting yeah but now it's like i was gonna say well, and all of this is it's not just to be sort of like iconoclastic for its own purpose oh, it, yeah. it, it's yeah. it's all in support of as i said from the start we're going after a giant opportunity and so we need to have something that can scale to billions of users it's um, it's almost like eye rolling to even talk about that scale we know it's possible but again be like no 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 that's just google does that you know like you could never do that but like uh and so we're like i don't know i i literally don't know what we can do and so let's find out like until we know that we can't scale to billions of users let's just keep going and so what would it take well you need to have a team that has high retention that you can scale nicely that's like has is cost effective you need to be profitable you need to have systems that can like if you're gonna have a, like you know millions of customers who's going to close them millions of salespeople like no that's not going to work it's got to be self-service it's got to be freemium like there's even there's no point in perfecting like you know i think a lot of companies get trapped in local maximum they're like oh you know we're really going to perfect this particular ad channel it's like can you 10x that channel if so why even bother it's like you're going to perfect this tiny niche and then you're going to have skills which are no longer relevant because you just weren't paying attention like we don't invest in anything that can't scale a thousand X because if you want to scale a thousand X, like you got to get started now sometime. Why not now? Interesting. What's really funny. You like quintessentially the definition of optimizing for the long term, yeah. And that's really what it is. Like yes. you got a product background that that's where it comes. Like, how did you get here? Like, how did you get to expensify? Yeah. My, my background, I've been a programmer since I was six, uh, computer graphics and video games are my jam. Nice. Uh, worked in the virtual reality lab, at the university of Michigan, uh, video game industry in Texas for a while. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then, uh, push to talk, video conferencing, uh, screen sharing, did, uh, Distributed content, just or seen the world. So, like, you know, so yeah, like yeah. my background's all in very hard technologies, yeah. which is maybe an unlikely background for the sure. expense report magnate that I've become. Yeah. But I would say I've always thought in terms of like distributed systems, decentralization, uh, viral growth, because that's just like been everything I've done. Was, yeah, so yeah. I, th- I think that uh, my background has lent me towards thinking about technical solutions and automatic solutions yeah. to problems of all sizes, and marketing and sales are just they're just problems like any other like those can be automated too if you choose to we have hints of how you think and how you think about things but 
we have a lot of the uh, standard style learnings because, you know, we, we, we haven't been in the game as, as long, um, even previous jobs. And so it's one of those things where you've kind of like gone all in on some of the things that we've like maybe half-assed. Maybe, yeah, I mean, I've yeah. seen it. I, I, this is like the seventh startup I've been part of. First, I've started, but I've seen it done badly again and again. This and style it, or some No, other no one's ever done this style, style before. Yeah. Um, the traditional style fails. Like, let's say, like everyone follows the same playbook in Silicon Valley. Yeah. But let's say I give you a book. It's like, hey, follow the business book. It fails 95% of the time. You'd be like, that book. Let me find the 5%. Yeah, but like, and so I'm st- instead, it's like, well, clearly no one has any idea. Like, all the best practices fail virtually always. Yeah. And so I'm just going to like, I'm just going to accept no one knows anything. I also don't know anything. We're just going to figure out as we go yeah. and be guided by what do we want to be true? Until we know it's not true, let's just be open to the possibility it is. Can you build a company that you want to work at forever? Can you surround yourself with just a team of super awesome people? Can you not have managers? Like all the that we hate, just like challenge if it's truly necessary. You remind me of, I don't know if you ever came across Patty McCord, Mm -hmm. Netflix chief talent officer for their big rise. And she's no longer there. She's retired, but very similar. Like, so she ran HR and recruiting. She's like, why are we doing it this way? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, it's the same, same kind of vibe. Have you seen other companies adopt some of this stuff or no? Not really. So first, because again, it requires a lot of things to go right. It requires that you have an inherently profitable business model. And so then out of the gate, 99% of startups are just disqualified. Yeah. Second, you need to have uh, the patience for a long outcome. And then that's like, okay, that disqualifies like the next 99%. Yeah. Because uh, I would say there's like two business models in Silicon Valley. There's like build a viable business like we do, or there's sell to a bigger sucker, which almost everyone does. And so all of the best practices are basically about how to sell to a bigger sucker. And then there's really no attempt to make any sort of business underneath it. And it, and it always ensures the VCs get rich, the founders sometimes gets rich, the employees always get f- And that's fine, that's just the way it works. And everyone's just kind of like signed up for that. And so I think that uh, you have to disregard all best practices from day one yeah. and focus on trying to build something big. And I, maybe this comes back to this talent, ambition, sort of humility sort of thing. Like you need to have a team from the start which embodies that yeah. and the conviction to keep distilling it further and further over time. And it's like, it's a very patient model. Was the profitability piece just so you have the freedom yeah. to play the long term, basically? Yeah, because once you have like, everyone thinks in terms of like, oh, what's your, you know. Three month plan. Yeah, <laughs> or, or, or your burn rate or whatever it is. And it's like, you know, it's no runway, there we go. It's like, oh, what's your runway? And I'm like, once it becomes infinite, like that just is a whole different world because now I was like, I'm confident that I can make the lives of my team amazing forever because we have a lot of visibility into the future or as much as anyone does, I guess I'd say, but we're not, we've just, we've, uh, we spread our risks around so widely yeah. that it takes like, you know, a pandemic, it, it doesn't, doesn't stop us. Like there's like huge things you can, we can endure if you sort of just take a mindset of like, we're going to diversify our risks as much as possible. We're going to centralize our control as much as possible. Um, and we're going to make sure that we have a plan that's going to get us to, you know, the long run. So like if you're selling something that let's say costs more, you know, it maybe doesn't actually need to require a salesperson, but I'm thinking of a lot of like B2B SaaS companies, right? Do you think there's a world where this could work for a somewhere a type of company that traditionally has like an inside sales model? I would say no. Okay. And the reason for that is, um, I think that when it comes to, if, if you were going to execute that classic book, like, I guess, again, the, the unit economics of your entire business model yeah. cannot be profitable and will not be, will not ever be profitable. And it's like, and I don't know why people think it's possible. Yeah. Um, I would say the only companies that follow the path and get profitable do it because 
eventually they're able to uh, establish a channel sales model, which is different. And so they're saying, I'm going to have an unprofitable model for a decade and just like fund it with investors. And then I'm going to sort of like start acquiring and build out channel sales. And then finally I can flip this to profitability. Like that works, but that part that you started with was never going to be profitable. You just got to accept that up front. And because, and, but it's also takes a long time to build up the, the, a sizable sort of customer base and product line that you can actually do a channel sales strategy. And so like that strategy it's like, okay, it might get profitable after you switch tactics in a very long term, if you can survive that long. It's, it burns so much cash to get there. Uh, there's no way you're going to be able to hold on to control of the company to get there. And furthermore, there are so many investors that you need to make promises to so early. And there are such outlandish promises based upon such uh, that basically, I don't know that you could have such a grounded team and that operates such a delusional model for such a long period of time. And then it's like after 12 years, it's like, all right, everyone, now let's drop all the <laughs> and now let's do it our way. It's just like, you just can't sustain the fiction for that long. How did your, because you had investors at one point. Yeah, like, we still have investors. How yeah. did that, the numbers have just been good, so they don't, they're on board? Like, not in the sense of what you're doing, but like, normally, like, it sounds like you didn't make those promises to them, that type of thing, or like, how does that work? So we, we did like, you know, I think three rounds of investment, like Series A, which is like, just before Seed was the thing, sort of thing. So we did Series A, and it's based upon just like the founder's personality. Sure. It's like, do they like your vision? Do you tell a good story? Sure. Series B is like, do you have anecdotal traction? And like Series C is basically like, do you have some early like fledgling metrics sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our Series C investor out of Boston was actually OpenView. And OpenView specializes in product-led growth companies. And so they understood our model. And so they saw our like negative revenue trend, things like this. And like, oh, this is what we're looking for. And now it's more common. But I would say, so we we kind of were able to go through the path without it having to make wild commitments. Um, and then we're just like, okay, cool. Now we're just off to the races. Now we just like make money. Just keep going. And then we yeah. just haven't raised money since, I don't know, it's like six years or something yeah, like this. Yeah. And then I think this is also giving you some freedom to do, you know, you already talked about Super Bowl ad and stuff like that. The one thing I wanted to ask you about, you sent an email 2016. Yeah. I think a lot of people looked at that in the traditional kind of playbook and were like, ah, like, like what the, you know, yeah. even if I agree to it, what is going on? Right. And then there were other people who were like, you shouldn't have done this, but I'm fine with it. Like, and like, what was the fallout okay, of that? So, so yeah, uh, give the rundown. So you're talking about basically I emailed out 10 million users. <laughs> I'm glad you're so flippant about it. I to love say it. Uh, anything less than a vote for Biden is a vote against democracy. So the company has been pretty socially active for a while. Like we have a nonprofit wing called expensify.org. We uh, feed thousands of families are on SNAP assistance. We uh, pay for people to get vaccines. We've got like 60 active campaigns basically and oh, across a whole bunch of funds. Uh, we were active in sort of like, through, we're in Portland. Uh, Portland's like the heart of the BLM protests. And so like we're working behind the scenes to work with BLM protesters and things like this. So like social engagement's been like a part of our DNA for a very long time. And so when it came up to, you know, the most recent election, and I, every, again, everyone follows the same process like I mentioned earlier. So I went, I went into what's next and I said like, hey everyone, I think there's a problem. Democracy is crumbling before our very eyes. And that will create an adverse business climate because not many expense reports get submitted during a civil war. And solution, I think we need to unlink Trump. Um, like this is a solution. That created a lot of internal discussion because we've got people as a highly diverse team, every political spectrum, uh, every point in the political spectrum. And then some people are like, but then it, it follows our process like any other. And then I also posted it like, this is my draft of the newsletter I think we should we should post. And uh, people like chimed in there and like, you know, edited it, swashed out things, like challenged certain things. They went to a different Slack room called the fact check room. The fact check room, the rule of that one is, so you can, so you can say like, um, I'm gonna challenge whether this particular fact is true or false. Um, and then uh, the rule there is everyone can make one post on a Slack thread. You can't name anyone else. You can't directly rebut anyone else. You just make your strongest 
arguments. So there isn't like evidence. little debatey stuff happening. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah, then because yeah. then otherwise one person just grabs the mic and talks forever. No, it's like no, make your strongest argument. And so we did all this for all the facts of it. And then it's like great. Then uh, then we're going to have what's called our top tier group, uh, people who've been here. There's like we've got this growth and recognition program with these four different tracks. If you get to the top of any of the tracks, you're part of this group. And this is kind of like the Senate of the company. Um, and then we say great. This requires this uh, for each fact. It requires a super majority of. Uh, this Senate to agree that it's basically with to pick one of the answers um, and then again so far as the company is determined this is true and then uh, at the very end it's like okay we're going to if we need a supermajority of this to agree to send this particular draft of the newsletter it's not my uh, my one regret for this whole thing is it, I signed it like it was me but it was actually like no the whole company participated in writing this newsletter this isn't my voice this is the company voice and we didn't lose anyone over it like we, no That's one quit wild. and so because I think everyone recognized we're trying to be inclusive of a wide variety of opinions but if your opinion just is just not the, the the majority, like if a super majority of people disagree with you, like we're not going to block on basically. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. So, um, so we sent that out, and uh, kind of like you know, like everyone's like, oh my god, your company's going to go under or something like this, or like you're going to get sued, or you're probably breaking some kind of law or whatever. And it's like, nope, nope, and nope. Less than 0.1 percent uh, like responded in any way. Yeah. And of those, we like when you try to trace down the results, the vast majority of people who complained were basically people who weren't even really customers in the first place. Because we have this huge premium contingent. And so like, I'm canceling my Sunfly account. It's like, dude, you never paid us anything anyway. It's hard to measure this stuff, but I believe in the long run, like, we gained so many more customers out of it than the few that we lost. Because in the end, democracy isn't actually that hard of a sell. Yeah. Uh, it's just like, it, it wasn't even really about Trump specifically. It's just like, we need to stand up for democracy. And that, that crosses all political lines. I think that trains you to take bigger risks too, which is good. I well, think. especially yeah. when you have long employee retention, because then like some people are freaking out. And then like our old guards was like, it's going to be fine. Because we remember four years ago, we did this other thing. We did this other yeah. thing that was like, you know, and like, and it was fine. And like, it's going to be a couple of days and then it's going to be fine. And we're going to look back at it in pride because we knew this was a time when we were actually called to take action and we stepped up and we're going to feel very proud of that. And, we're, and we hope we can inspire more to, to do the same. Do you think the uh, pin is back in the grenade for the Civil War thing? Kind of a political question? No. no. I, think it's I mean, I think that like, like, for example, it's like, you know, there's this cyber ninja down in uh, Arizona to like, you know, find the lie or whatever. It proves that Biden won by an even wider margin. They're like, see, proof of fraud. Something happened. It's like, yeah, wh wh yeah. what are you talking about? Where yeah. did you even get that? So I think it's it's worrisome. I think there's like the combination of like, you know, this QAnon, sort of the big lie, uh, like vaccine skepticism, Bitcoin. I think there's like a whole bunch of stuff which bears no basis in reality whatsoever. And I think that somehow, and I, I, this is my theory. I have no idea if this is true. It's like the existence of one thing that is widely accepted, but obviously untrue, yeah. makes it easier to accept other, other things, things which are obviously yeah. untrue because it's basically unhinges from reality. It's just like, I think the financial system is going to blockchain or something. And also uh, we can't trust democracy anymore. And, so and also the vaccines yeah. are, are implanting microchips. This is crazy. It's obviously there's like these these uh, satanic cannibalistic pedophiles that that doesn't sound unreasonable, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though like no part of this makes any sense whatsoever. It's yeah, it is fascinating. So what did you think of like, I don't I'm pretty sure you're familiar with like the base camp guys, what they oh, did. Yeah. And obviously it was not just them, but like Coinbase and others like it feels like Expensify wouldn't do that at all because it doesn't it kind of violates the ethos. But like, do you think they're making a mistake in that light? They, it's, it's not a mistake. Yeah, it's, it's not a mistake it's a choice, to, maybe, to establish yeah. a place uh, which is authoritarian. It's just basically, it's like, okay, if you work at Coinbase uh, or Basecamp, 
the only sort of political discussion is that which the founders support. And that's just that. And so now that's a place that's like that. And so it's like, it's not diverse, it's not inclusive, but there's no law saying you have to be, at least not yet. It's not a mistake to make a place that's not inclusive. I think it just is very counterproductive in the long run. The bar that you ho- you set, it seems like you can have nuanced, disagreeable discussions without it going into like craziness, right? Um, to kind of make a generalization. I think a lot of companies, because they don't set that bar, they end up having, um, and it's not an age thing, but they end up having a swell of people who having a nuanced, disagreeable conversation and without a check and balance of like, you get one post and like this type of thing, they just don't have a playbook yeah. to like allow that. So they go, we're just going to outlaw because that's the easiest thing to do. Right. And, and that's why like talking to you, we, I, I, we've already over on time and I want to be respectful is like. It, it would be interesting for you to like publish if it's interesting to you, like a playbook of like, yeah, we can have disagreeable conversations where there's left, right, whatever views at the company, because this is kind of how we structure it. Yeah, yeah but I would say dis- not all disagreement has to be disagreeable. And I think, yeah, it's about starting small, having internal discussions, working out your processes there. Yeah. And also like um, so internally, we're we say like we're we only have two rules. Uh, rule number one is get done. Rule number two is don't f- it up for everyone else. Um, and everything traces back to that. And you kind of just, and you hire awesome people, and you're, and, but you're also very strict in these roles. Yeah. And it's basically because I think there's a lot of companies where there's someone obviously f***ing it up for everyone else, and no one says anything. Uh, and that creates, it's kind of like the broken windows theory. It's like, oh, well, that guy gets away with it. Then I, well, can I, I get can do away whatever, with it? yeah. We got two rules. They're not well-defined, but they're real. I think that you're ruining it for everyone else. Anyone else agree? And I was like, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that's kind of. I don't know exactly how. It's kind of like what the Supreme Court is like, what exactly is pornography? It's like, you know when you see see it. it, And it's the same thing for most things like this. And I think most companies are like, it only breaks the rule if it objectively breaks a written rule. Anything else is acceptable. And we're like, no, no, no. Most of our rules are are intentionally ambiguous um, because by the time it's broken, it's obvious. Um, even if it was never defined. We have a company that really respects, again, like, you know, inclusiveness and diversity. And that means creating an environment where people feel comfortable being themselves. And that means being comfortable to raise things which others will disagree with. And uh, and, and having the intellectual, the emotional maturity and, and habits and, and tactics to sort of resolve it. There's no like magical playbook for that. Yeah. It's just, I would think it really comes down to a commitment. It's like, do you want to work here forever? If so, do you like that? If not, it's like, if it were your lawn, uh, you would go pick it up because it's your lawn. It's like, just treat your company like like at least as nice as you would treat your lawn. Have you ever had a situation where there was such an issue, not necessarily political, but anything where like the conversation kind of devolved into like- you All know, the time. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I would say, and we've gotten better at it, but I would say, as I mentioned, so we're very good at, at screening for talent and for ambition. Humility- It's hard, Reveals yeah. itself over time because anyone can keep their together for like an interview or a week or even a couple of years. But over time, people kind of like, they figure out, they've been like harboring some deep resentment, but hiding it. And then they figured out who else has the same resentment. And then they create their own kind of like toxic bubble. Um, And then uh, something happens and then they all basically try to flex at the same time. Uh, this comes back to the, one of the things we're afraid of. I'm, I'm more afraid of internal collapse than I am anything else. Because I've seen that happen again and again. You can sheave off an entire group of people over something which is completely non-existent. Um, something non-existent fear. But I think we've just been through that enough. Is basically, it's like, yeah, we lost, like, you know, like six people over this issue, which is, had no basis whatsoever. But now they're gone. Um, and everyone who's left is like, well, you know what? That's why we're all journalists. We didn't strictly need them either it's like we're just this amorphous blob it's like we're a smaller blob now but like we're still enough to get everything done and so it's kind of like distilling a balsamic over time it's like yeah a lot 
it's not about how much boils off, it's about what sort of what remains. And so, yeah, I think you just need to be comfortable that it's like, you can be a great place and also not the best place for everyone. And to say, it's like, hey, you seem really unhappy here. Everyone else seems fine. Um, and I'm not saying that you're right or wrong. I'm just saying there's a lot of places to work. And is this really how you want to spend your time? Because it's not really how I want to spend my time. This is the hardest thing we learned in the past three years. It was we have to accommodate everything. There's this thing. And then literally in the last like 18 months, we started, we went from a place of like, it's our fault. We need to be better. Yeah. We're bad the, the managers. imposter syndrome kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And then we were like, and then someone told me actually earlier this year when we started like the final kind of phase of this was like, yeah, but so-and-so is great in this environment. Here's all these people who are amazing in this environment. And, and it's not like you or someone else is acting differently to them versus the other person. It's like, oh, maybe it's, and then it's like, well, they're not bad. There's just a misalignment. Like yeah. they think about the world differently. Exactly. And that's okay. Like yeah, have totally them go okay. somewhere else, you know, and you can have like really good offboarding and, you know, it's, you know, there's always a little bit of like shock or, you know, hopefully not resentment, but sometimes it happens. But like, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. This has been great. I, we've kept you longer than we were supposed yeah, to, but no like, this was, uh, you know, uh, I don't normally use like mind blowing. This is definitely mind expanding. <laughs> no, seriously. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass. It's like, there, it's, it's like a very, um, it's one of those things where like whenever you can challenge, at least in my mind, whenever I have someone who challenges like either things I've learned or things that like I'm assuming are, are the right ways of doing things, I think it's really important because it proves there's other ways up the mountain, but it also proves that like some of the narratives like yeah. and some of the narrative like is in is having serious consequences that you're not thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's why like team building and is like the hardest long term challenge, I think. And when it comes to grappling with basically these like what kind of behaviors to tolerate i think that our rule is like we can tolerate basically anything except for intolerance itself you can be you and that doesn't mean that we always have to like everything about you yeah. but the thing that we cannot tolerate is you creating an environment which isn't inclusive of others yeah. um and i think that's been kind of our, our golden rule there yeah awesome man where can people find you anything you want to plug and go to like twitter uh, d barrett d-b-a-r-r-e-t-t -T, or expensify and i'm easy to find awesome this has been awesome man thanks a huge shout out to Dave Barrett. That was one of my favorite podcast episodes I have ever done. So I can't thank you enough, Dave. Now you have what it takes to be deliberate with your process. Today, we talked about marketing effectively by being unconventional, the roadmap to company-wide efficiency, obsessing over process, overcoming fears as an operator, and the two rules for disagreeable discussion. Oh, and if you want to support Paddle and the show, we would greatly appreciate it if you left a five-star review of this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen or watch. The podcast gods tend to like that type of thing, and we like to appease the podcast gods. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from Paddle Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions.